people understand that if there's a school shooting in Tennessee, that they're going to expect the news outlet to be, well, that's the 13th school shooting in the U.S. Right. But we don't like with traffic violence. It's like, yeah, someone got hit on Broadway. Weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like not contextualized in, in a broader way. There's so many crashes that we're not treating them as the tragic events they are. It's just like sort of, yeah, 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 that was another car crash, next story. Somehow we got to get the media to treat these as the tragedies they are. It's not just grinding out another traffic story. This is like an important problem in our society, right? What does that look like if we remove the main mode of transportation in most cities, which are cars, and really allow spaces for people to be able to walk and bike. People would feel more comfortable actually biking with their kids and with their family when there's not so many cars on the street. This is Bike Talk on uh, KPFK live stream, now on Zoom because of COVID. Um, this is your host, Don Ward, and my co-host, Nick Richard, is having some uh, technical difficulties. Um, our first guest today is Peter Flax, who has been on the show. He's kind of a regular, and we'd love to have you on. Welcome to the show, Peter. Great to be here. Thanks, Don. Good to see you. So you wrote an article recently, and this is a very important article, actually, because um, I guess you'd call it like sort of a, a style guide, right, for for journalists on how to talk about car crashes and and uh, you know traffic violence. So um, I was going through those ten points, and um, uh, we should go through each one of those. But generally, um, let's talk about what your what what your plans are with this article. Are you going to are you going to put this out there? We're going to get this to journalists. Well, that was the idea. You know, I have um, I have all these Google alerts. Every morning, I wake up and I sit on my couch and I ping pong and I read all these stories about uh, bike riders and pedestrians who've been hit and killed, and they're just generally awful. So your article is kind of like an AP style guide, but for specifically for uh, journalists to discuss and report on on uh, traffic violence. Every morning I drink coffee on the couch and I read all these stories about bike riders and pedestrians that have been killed. And it just makes my blood boil every, every morning that um, you know, the stories just um, are victim blaming and um, have poor, poor sort of journalistic standards and they have headlines that um, don't mention human agency. Um, and, and so, a lot of times I go on Twitter and I engage with journalists and news organizations to try and talk to them about what's wrong with the stories. And so my idea was to write a story and publish it that then rather than having to do one-off conversations that I could, you know, through social media or email, send them best practices um, to do a better job of reporting on these crashes uh, where people die or get hurt. Yeah, that's awesome. I've been in the same boat. And I, what is it that, how did we get here? How did, you know, how, it, was there, do you know the history of this? Was there some kind of, uh, was there some kind of, uh, like, propaganda push back in the 30s or 40s, you know, when they 
started to talk about crossing the street as being jaywalking. Was that sort of a, a thing that happened? Did the automotive industry or whoever put out their own style guide back in the day and start talking about? I think that's know, part of it. And also just with police, you know, right now policing is um, a broad conversation. And I think, you know, forever, um, the people who um, kill someone get to write the narrative of what happened. The people who died are always um, silent. And so I think, you know, it's understandable that if you're driving a car um, and not a bad person that you just feel like, oh my God, that person came out of nowhere and I didn't, you know, they got in my way. And, and the, the police have just often just parroted what's been told to them by people who commit these assaults and, and, you know, now journalism has become so um, local. There's just so many young people that are not well-trained that are reporting news and don't have the more rigorous education about journalistic best practices. And so a combination of forces, I think, have led to just this um, systemic problem of, of horrible news stories. I think one of the first or one of the most significant times that I recall uh, where a journalist just repeated the police line. Uh, there was a woman who was speeding on, I believe it was Jefferson Boulevard, and there, were, there was a group ride that was in the right lane, and she plowed into them, the whole group that was like maybe 20 people that were injured. And uh, it was over by the Culver City. There's a there's a like a lookout up up the hill from there. So they were they were they were gathering and they were getting ready to go. And this woman uh, completely plowed into them. And the police officer uh, told Alex Michelson um, of ABC News that there was uh, condoms and and beer bottles up at the the lookout point up the hill. Right. And and he just repeated that. And, and I, I actually confronted Alex Michelson at Occupy about that. And I was like, why was that even an important thing to report just because the cops said it? It was just so frustrating right. that the story wasn't, you know, woman plows into 20 cyclists. It's not their fault, you know. Right. Uh, sticking to the facts is somehow... Um, so reasonable, but it, it, um, in practice, it, it winds up being um, often overlooked in the way these stories come together. So let's, let's go through the list of, uh, that, you've, that you've written out, the 10. Um, let's, let's go through a few of them. Uh, uh, do you, you have the article in front of you? I unfortunately don't have the article in front of me. I, can, I have a link here. Hold on. I can pull it up. Uh, yeah. yeah, here we go. So the first one I know is, uh, is uh, don't use the word accident. Now this, right. this one's so easy and yet over and over again, it's, it's used like, like if I have a puppy and it piddles on the floor, like that's an accident. But if someone's driving a 4,000 pound SUV and, and is driving a bit too fast on a cold, wet night, like whatever happens after that is not an accident. It's, it's like a, a, we can pick a neutral term like crash um, to, to try and, and, and just describe what happened. But accident sounds like there, there was this uncontrollable event that happened and it winds up just sounding like um, already fault has been removed from what happened. 
Right. And, and that word goes way back, right? That, that is one of those words that the, you know, whoever the, the automotive lobby or the, the powers that be sort of introduced, right? Or, yeah, you know, and it's, and it's so absurd if you think about, like, just imagine if, like, the Ford Motor Company in the 30s had just said, like, no, it's not a car crash, let's call it an oopsie. And then, like, then suddenly, like, 70 years later, everyone would be like, oh, there was an oopsie on Main Street. It's like, it's, it's not an accident. Um, and, and we can just pick a neutral term that, like, somebody hit somebody and it, it's a crash or a collision, and, and just use a word that just describes it without removing um, human agency from what happened. Right, because you wouldn't necessarily, I guess you wouldn't call a plane crash an accident. You, they spend lots of money and time figuring out exactly what the cause was. And a lot of, you know, sometimes it could be that the pilot didn't make an error. The system itself was designed poorly. And that goes with car crashes as well. If you have a road that sort of induces you to drive fast because it's wide and, and uh, there's no traffic controls and you're driving fast and you hit somebody, you know, part of that blame goes to the engineers of the road. And I think that, sort of, that definitely gets removed when you call it an accident. Yeah, it just starts sounding like an act of God. And, uh, yeah. so, and again, at this one, the AP um, has actually, they refuse to put it in their style guide, but on social media, they repeatedly send out alerts to news organizations saying it's best to avoid the word um, accident, use crash or collision instead, which is- They, re they refuse to put it in their style guide, really. I should say is they, they they have communicated about it for several years and have not yet updated their style guide to include it. They send out okay. a lot. Who knows what the Associated Press has got going on there. Okay. And let's, let's, uh, let's go to number two. Number two is to avoid, I mean, um, to acknowledge human agency. And uh, that, that, what I mean by that is, um, you know, you never read a story where it says a young woman was killed by a knife or by bullets. The stories say that like somebody, you know, was um, knifed by uh, someone in a gang or, or, or that like one guy shot another guy and, and that like for some reason with um, fatalities involving cars that we wind up with these, um, these stories with no perpetrator. It's like the person was, you know, a car jumped the curb and hit the person waiting at the bus stop. And, and again, in a way that I think could be neutral is just like, say that like somebody piloting, you know, an Escalade plowed into the person at the, at the, bu at the bus stop. It's just a add a human agent because that's right. other fatality um, would be covered. You know, like a vehicle driver jumped the curb and killed a person sitting at the bus stop. Sounds, it sounds more relatable it sounds more human right than if you say a car killed a pedestrian it sounds almost like uh sanitized or something or it removes emotion from it i mean and we're not even yet in the era of autonomous cars and yet that's how these stories feel like there's not someone behind the wheel and I, you know I, I know that at times as a bike rider you can be like oh there was this time i got hit by a car and i can find myself falling in um 
to that habit because it's so part of our culture to talk that way. But in particularly in news stories that are reporting people dying, it should indicate that like somebody was piloting that car. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay, let's check out number three. Three is avoid um, speculative assertions. And what I mean by that, if you've read these stories, um, you know, they'll, they'll say like, uh, oh, a child was hit on Broadway. Um, he, you know, appears to have veered in front of the car. And, and that the, these, these assertions come often, you know, like these stories get published hours after these incidents happen. And what um, really has happened is that like the person driving the car spoke to a police officer and then the police officer wrote a reporter, spoke to a reporter. And that's the entirety of the journalistic process that happened. And, and, and it's just too soon um, to, to speculate on what, what happened. And, and the, you know, we don't, we don't say like the, the, the person in the, in, in the, in the Porsche was speeding. If we don't, if there's not like data on them speeding and likewise, you know, we don't have to speculate on, on what um, the, the either party was doing. Yeah. And I suppose a lot of this comes out of that crashes are so common that you probably won't even get a second re second report on this crash. Yeah. And so the reporter is just like banging out a story and the authority in the matter is the cop. And for some reason, the cops are just always, it seems like they're always on the side of the driver unless it's like a drunk driving thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are drivers and I get that like 99% of the adult population drives and like, you know, whatever, three or 4% rides a bike regularly. And so um, they, they are unconsciously sympathetic. Like, you know, obviously most of these people didn't get up and have breakfast and think, oh, I'm going to go out and kill a bike rider. And, and so people are like naturally empathetic to the people who, who were driving. Um, right. Yeah, I get that. But, but, but somehow it's like the, with the police, like they're the authority. They should be uh, restrained in putting, you know, casting the blame on someone. And it just seems like, at least in my experience, when I've worked with uh, people that have been victims of hit and run was kind of my big deal a number of years ago. And it just could not get cops to really see that uh the the the, the they, they should at least be neutral in the yep. way that they you know talk about this stuff or report on it it's just it's mind-blowing why that i it would be great to get into why this is and try to fix that as well but it uh, i think the big first step is this ap style guide those are systemic policing problems i wrote a story about a a young woman who was a bike messenger who got killed in Manhattan last year. And um, I was able to obtain the police investigation report that came out, you know, maybe nine months after um, they, they died. And in that report, it's really obvious that um, the investigator who came to the scene an hour after the crash um, talked to the driver of the truck and made the decision right there that the um, cyclist had veered into the truck and then you know it's like a hundred page document where he talked to eyewitnesses and he looked at videotape and he interviewed um, other people and it was clear that that's not what happened and yet he just 
the, the report just in the end blamed the cyclists for their own death, even though there was a mountain of evidence suggesting um, that something else happened. And, and that's, um, you know, again, just a, a bias that's within the police and one of 110,000 things that need to get fixed about policing in the U.S. <laughs> uh, you're right. It's a lot. Uh, let's, let's go to the next one. Let's go to number four. Yeah. I love these. These are, these are so good. It's so important. I'm blaming. I mean, it's just so obvious. Like, you read these stories and they're like, oh, the, the bike rider was wearing black clothing. Like, as if, like, Therefore, you're partially responsible for your own death. You know, the mention of, of the bike helmet when people are like hit by a city bus is just um, on and on. The, the, the you know, um, question of like what the person was doing is, is raised in a way that's completely inappropriate. That journalists are trained now that like, for instance, with stories about sexual assault, I think the average journalist now knows that if they say, something victim blaming, they're going to possibly lose their job. And yet um, in this area, it's pretty common to just blame a pedestrian or a bike rider. You know, they weren't in a crosswalk, you know, and then again, it's not even clear whether that's been reported out. It's just like a police person told it to them and they just parrot it. Right. <sighs> yeah. And, and a lot of times, you know, it's like the sun is in the windshield and that's an acceptable excuse for why this person got hit, you know, in a crosswalk or something like that. And it's just sort of like, I was taught when the sun hits my windshield and I can't see, I need to immediately slow down to the point where I can see before I move forward. And I've just seen so many reports where you're, the driver's excused because the sun was in their eye or they're excused because the person uh, was wearing dark clothes, but that's not excusable. The, if the crosswalk is not lit up or if the driver gets the sun in their face, like these are not excuses. These are reasons and someone's at fault. Yeah, I agree completely. So that's, uh, but that's a, that's a tough one to, uh, fix because those kinds of, of assertions are like part of like if a, if a police officer comes to the scene of a crash you know they, they do this quick assessment and they're like was the pedestrian in a crosswalk you know they, they all note whether the rider was wearing a helmet or not and whether they had lights and dark clothing and and so um, you know I don't have a problem with them collecting that information but when it's turned over to the press as though that's one of three or four salient points to explain what happened um they're just winding up blaming the victim so how how are we going to change this okay so we've got your style guide what's the next step we need to get this into the ap style guide right like yeah. where do you advocate for that already people are um you know the tagging me and that like, you know, the, the Seattle newspaper writes a story about a rider getting killed and someone will write back and be like, no, you got a lot of things wrong. Here's some best practices. And um, it's still pretty um, distributed like that. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how to really get it codified so that lots more journalists um, see it that, you know, it's better than 
just getting on Twitter one-on-one -on -one with people, but it, it, um, it's still going to require some time and work. Yeah, like I, I guess there's some kind of uh, governing board of the Associated Press that, that rules on, yeah. on there this. Is, yeah, but we're at a point now where, you know, digital journalism is so local that th there, are, there are tens of thousands of people writing and filming little news stories, and those people are not bound by the Associated Press st style guides. And so it's like we've got this larger problem of all these really cool, talented 25-year-old folks that are out there that can, like, film and write and edit and post and, and um, you know, and, and to, to get all those people to understand best practices is going to be a more complicated process. But I think that a lot of times with traffic collisions, you're not getting as many, you're still, like, those are still reported on by the major news outlets. I don't think there's a whole lot of citizen journalists, right, that are doing traffic collision reporting or... Patch, like, you know, patch.com, like, there's yeah, yeah. that kind of, of, of hyper-local journalism mm -hmm. and a lot of okay. time. Um, that's where, like, like the LA Times may write a story a day later and they, they, they got it from seeing somebody, um, you know, in Culver City Patch writing a story and they picked it up. So it, it is like... That's a so funny, that's... So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Let's do, let's do a couple more and I think we're going to. Okay. Yeah. So the next, next one, which I think is interesting is add broader context. This is like maybe a harder one to do, but it's like, I know that if I read a story tomorrow that says someone got killed crossing the street in Vista Del Mar out of Playa del Rey, I'll be like, oh, that's like the 10th person in the last 10 years to get killed crossing the street there. There's like a systemic problem and that context is important, but like 99.9% .9 of the time, these are just presented as these like one-off moments and that there aren't like repeatable systemic problems with road design or regulations or um, driver behavior in those places. And so I think it's just important and, and it sort of connects to this idea of just like, reaching out to an advocate in that area because the advocates wind up knowing where these problems exist and can make it part of the story so that people are like, oh, you know, that's the 22nd bike rider to get killed in New York City this year. This is like a big freaking problem. It's not just like some dude in Brooklyn. This is a systemic problem that needs to get fixed. Right, because uh, a lot of times they'll report on, you know, maybe like a terrorist strike or something or, and they will provide a broader, broader context. They'll tell you how many strikes have happened and so forth, but we don't hear that. We just hear about that one-off crash and they're just everywhere. We don't hear, that's a great point. I, I love that point. Um, a lot of times I'm in these neighborhood groups and on Facebook and I'll see people post about crashes and there's particular intersections that just, you know, like right now I can remember one exactly. It's Van Owen and Platt. There's always crashes there. And it's like people will post up the crash and there'll be all hair and fire, hair on fire about that crash. And I like to go in there and, and contextualize it for them. I'll be like, hey, this intersection has some big problems. And I'll even do like, I've done like diagrams and shown like, hey, look, there's a, the 
you know, a, a traffic light that's more than a mile away from this intersection. Think about the speed you can build up before you get to this intersection, that kind of thing. Reporters would be, it would be great if reporters could include that kind of information, that kind of analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's like 7,000 Americans um, die as pedestrians or bike riders every year. And I get the Google alerts every day. And it's like you read these stories and, and put yourself in the shoes of the average consumer reading that. They just don't realize that it's just one little puzzle piece in this giant problem of road violence. And, and so it's, it's like if we can't, if the journalists can't help communicate that to people, then people like, like lose sight of the issue. Like people understand that if there's a school shooting in Tennessee, that they're going to expect the news outlet to be, well, that's the 13th school shooting in the U.S. Right. But we don't, like with traffic violence, it, it, it's like, yeah, someone got hit on Broadway. Weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like not contextualized in, 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 in a broader way. Yeah, the school shooting thing, for sure. They definitely add up uh, school shootings every year. We should be doing that with crashes as well. Yeah. Um, let's do another point and then we're gonna um, we have Yolanda uh, Overstreet who's coming up next with uh, with her own segment yeah we're looking uh, but uh, I I, want to get another couple uh, items from you and then we'll talk about where we can uh, link to this and and uh, and get in touch with you and tag you on Twitter Terrific. So we can, we can start creating more noise around this. Yeah, I, I wrote this on Medium, which is like essentially pro bono. Like I wanted to write this just so I could get it right. And so far I've made like $2 on this story. So I'm almost up to a cup of coffee on it. Um, <laughs> uh, another one was just about attribution, which for, um, you know, is like journalist speak, but it, it, it's like in the story indicate like where this information came from that I think a lot of, people don't understand how the sausage is made. And that typically when you read a news story, all that happened was like the person driving the car got interviewed by a police officer and they were like, holy crap, the guy came out of nowhere. And then, and then the police officer writes it down and then the journalist gets that report and that's all that's in the story, right? There's no, there, there was no canvassing for other witnesses. There was no GPS data. There was no historical, um, investigation and, and so it's like if the story is going to say like oh a cyclist sort of pulled out in front of a bus um just they should be clear that it's like that's just based on the driver saying that to the police and nothing more than that right right and again i think it goes back to just there's so many crashes that they're we're not treating them as special events like we're not treating them as the tragic events they are. It's just like sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was another, you know, car crash, next story. Like somehow we got to get the media to treat these as the tragedies they are. It's not just grinding out another traffic story. This is like an important problem in our society, right? Yeah. And it's just one front in this complex battle because as you know, you know, often the road design is poor, the laws that are there to protect us are poor, the judicial system and the legislative system have failed us. Like obviously the police are not um, super dependable. And, and so to like harp on the journalists, they're just one piece in this complex problem, but they're, they're the ones that like convey information to the public 
and, and the public needs to more clearly understand um, what, what the larger issues that keep causing all these people to die. So I wonder uh, sometime in the future we can come back to this and kind of identify like, is there, is there a board of governors at the Associated Press that runs the style guide that we can talk to directly and lobby? Um, is there someone at the you know, LAPD that we can lobby I don't know. I'm always trying to think of like, who can we hound and bring pitchforks out and, and talk to, to get these things changed. And I don't know, there's like a million things I know that are, that are wrong in the world, but somehow, you know, somehow we got to get our, somehow this has to happen. But uh, Peter, uh, thanks. Thanks for writing this. This is a great first step. Um, What's your social media? Tell us your social media where we could tag you. Yeah, and, so, uh, yeah. I'm a, I, I definitely put most of my energy into, into Twitter and I'm out there fighting the good fight on a daily basis. Um, yes, my, you are. Thank you. Is, uh, PFLAX1, P-F-L-A-X, the number one. Um, and uh, yeah, anybody who cares about this issue, uh, feel free to join in with me. Yeah, so Twitter, PFLAX1. And your article can be found on Medium. Is it Medium slash Peter Flax or? Uh, it's, I'm sure the, the actual URL is um, like a, a thousand characters. It's Googleable, but I, I don't know what the URL is. It's not. Okay, we'll put the link in with, uh, when we throw up the SoundCloud. Uh, Peter, thanks for coming on. Um, your work is very valuable to us. Thank you so much. Good to see you, Don. Good to see you, too. We're going to bring in Yolanda T. Davis Overstreet. Hi. So basically, uh, welcome to a new series uh, that we are piloting here during this time, which is called We the People, Black Lives Rolling. Uh, it is a virtual conversation series pilot that will bring attention not only to Black Lives Bicycling, but also to both the issues and healing solutions around the social, political, economic challenges that we, the people of Los Angeles in America and globally are facing. Um, our goal during this time basically is to have fun, but also to tap into the less heard narratives uh, and your experiences and also potential and livable, you know, healing solutions to move us forward into equity-based uh, solutions, safety, sustainability, community, and compassion. So before we start, I would like to introduce our panelists for this evening. Um, first, um, Pauletta Pierce, and it's just been a pleasure meeting you all through the years. So I know you all, I've worked with you all in some capacity. And Pauletta was born in Los Angeles and is a mother of two daughters, a certified drug and alcohol uh, two CA. Uh, is that, did I say that right, Pauletta? Is that? Yes, you did. Two CA and a domestic violence counselor who serves the justice involved population at Twin Towers with homeless health care. Uh, in Los Angeles. And she's also a bike rider who has worked with a number of community organizations such as Save LA Chinatown, uh, article contributor of 
W-A-P-O-W. What pal? Powell, okay, well, Powell, and a former core member of Ovarian Cycles, a former member of LA Rooted, a current PMJ mob, and founder of Date with the Night Bike Collective. So thank you, Pauletta, for being with us. Um, thank you for having me. Definitely. Uh, Lena Williams is a bike manager and a pet care expert from South Carolina. So she's a little ways from home. Uh, that uh, she basically has spent the last four years working to build community in South LA, uh, and Lena uses all pronouns. Michaela, I actually met uh, some, wow, I guess it was around 19, I mean, uh, 2013, uh, when she was working with um, Safe Routes to School Partnership, and I met she and her daughter on a bike ride. Uh, and also Michaela has an extensive 15 years of, of working um, with nonprofits and a range of government uh, organizations uh, along with uh, children and nature uh, network and uh, now has her own consulting firm where she does a wide range of communications, uh, pedestrian, um, and community safety work. So welcome you all to uh, this evening. And I know we don't have much time, so we're gonna be just kind of moving in to first off, I just think the question of how you guys are doing today and just to share a few words on you know, how you're feeling in terms of what's going on with you in this time of the COVID-19 and the uprising, the social environmental uprising. What are some of your thoughts uh, going through your head? this evening for sure yeah i am feeling wonderful i feel really creative uh right now i feel like that's what this time has been requiring of me um so just really creative around the ways that i am still able to connect with folks and do this work awesome yeah for myself being an essential worker the last 14 well actually last 16 years working uh, in an epidemic of drugs and alcohol. Now, another layer of the epidemic in a pandemic, you know, we've had to, I've had to configure how I navigate through work and how I navigate through be, uh, with motherhood and with organizing. And, um, you know, um, so, but, um, you know, I, I'm actually doing pretty good, you know. Uh, you know, I think... I think uh, it's, you know, being an essential worker and being a bike rider, we just kind of like, it's easier to, you know, figure things out and, yeah. and just keep moving forward. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And Michaela? Uh, yeah, I would say that I'm uh, healthy and my family's healthy. So there's uh, some solace there, but I also am feeling very exhausted um, from so much information and um and just also being a mother and trying to manage that uh and make meaningful change in the world so that's a combination of good and question <laughs> yeah i could definitely understand that and i think that was one of the things that really stood out to me as we you know just try to look at how we can be involved in um as it relates to our city in terms of how we're moving around in our city you know, whether it's on bikes or walking and trying to figure out where we go, where we don't go and how we can also use our community to um, pretty much 
keep get, keep getting that exercise in and using the outdoor spaces, but it's a little scary too, you know. And so that's some of the things that I think um, as it relates to the, you know, the rising of of of, of kind of toxic even more of a toxic racism, acts of hatred. Um, and then also we have COVID-19 on top of that. And so, you know, to try to figure out how we kind of maneuver and navigate through this time. And so the, the, we're just gonna go right into the big question um, that we have for this evening and which is, and we can kind of just go in the order that we had a few minutes ago is, uh, how do you guys feel Black Lives can move forward um, reimagining and utilizing our outdoor public spaces on bikes or walking or commuting? And also, you know, the acts of standing up for social and environmental justice that we're dealing with in this time. So we'll start with Lena. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a very multi-layered question. Um, but, uh, for me, I think about it from the perspective of, uh, biking as a form of resistance. Um, so, uh, occupying space, taking up space in traditionally white-led, you know, sort of spaces around cycling, sort of, you know, existing in those spaces as they currently are, um, or were, um, I think is a form of resistance in itself. So taking up and, you know, um, really sort of galvanizing that freedom that, you know, I feel, you know, from biking and the experience that, you know, it gives me. It's a journey and adventure that I'm taking on two wheels. So I feel like we as people can get back to being multimodal like we were before. Uh, we had a deep relationship with the land, growing food, you know, uh, you know, really working the land and then in that way and tying those two together you know, I think will uh, bring us together as community, but also uh, show us in many ways, uh, you know, how to tap into our strengths, um, but also, you know, sort of carry us through this, you know, this wave, you know, what's happening to, with COVID, because if we're taking care of ourselves, you know, in these ways, we're growing our food, we know where it's coming from, we don't have to worry about being in these, you know, food deserts where we don't have fresh produce and things like that. We build relationship with these farmers uh, and community members in this way. I think that this, it's a, <clears throat> a simple approach to a very complex, you know, sort of issue. Um, so that's the way that I, you know, sort of think about it. I think about, you know, existing in those spaces. I think that also if we are farming, if we're building relationships with farmers and local farmers, then we're being tied into, you know, environmental justice. You know, we are being tied into these other movements in this way. Uh, because we are, you know, multifaceted people, you know, we are, you know, living at the intersection. Uh, so we want to, you know, really try to dig as deep as possible to figure out ways that we can, you know, tap into those ways that we were doing it before. I think in some ways creating some sort of resource like a green book that is full of resources that we're using current day and not just like, you know, that we talk about like our people used before as a form of safety and travel, uh, but that we're using now to create community and a way to, you know, sort of survive during these, you know, sort of unfamiliar times. We tap into familiar ways of, you know, living and surviving. Yeah, definitely. I definitely can relate to all that. And um, I think um, for me, you know, daily, it's kind of the, the challenge of how do we transition? You know, how do I to pretty much really intentionally change um, the way, the old ways that I've 
done things um, and move into this new way of thinking and maybe even ways that, you know, my grandparents um, handled life um, more so than how we're doing it now because they definitely had more of a resilience, a plan of resilience. Um, so thank you for that. And uh, so we'll just move on to uh, Pauletta now. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, yeah, I've been, you know, since COVID hit, you know, I've just been thinking that this is the time for the whole world to get really philosophical and really start doing an inventory of what's important and what's not important. Do we really like care about celebrities and how they're living their lives and reality shows? Like, is that really important to us? Do, do, are, are these really our, our role models? So, you know, I've always been in that, that vein type of thinking. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then when the COVID hit, you know, it was just like, okay, this is, this is a wake up call for everybody. You know, what is important to us? and what isn't important to us. And of, of course I did uh, that assessment, that inventory uh, for, with myself and my own life. And, uh, you know, did some, you know, a lot of deep thinking on that. And the, and the questions that you presented, you know, I've been thinking about that uh, the, the last couple of months, um, being, a, being a, a person that organizes through the bike. You know, like I, you know, uh, was trying to imagine. I knew I had to think of another way, you know, and 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 uh, get other people involved. Like uh, Lena, we um, recently just did um, Juneteenth People of Color uh, bike ride, and it was a, an experiment, but it turned out, I think, very well. It, it was a way of not only getting exercise, but it was what my bike collective called bike medicine. We were able to create that bike medicine and uh, get the physical, the emotional, and mentally fed, which sp spills into our spiritual being. And, uh, you know, during this time, there's, uh, you know, um, definitely, definitely a... Uh, the, the political climate is, is hot. Um, so it was a very beautiful event where we got to take charge of our, and own our history and um, not be ashamed that like a lot of us didn't really know about Juneteenth. And uh, as you know, the, uh, for the audience, uh, Yolanda and I, we did a Juneteenth last, last year. Mm -hmm. And it was so wonderful. We learned, I mean, I learned so much. And this year, continuing that, I learned, even learned more. Um, just little, little nuggets, uh, historic nuggets came to me. Um, I learned that, I learned that um, um, a, Baptist, um, a Baptist preacher in Savannah, Georgia, pitched the idea to the colonel about a 40 acres and a mule. His name was Kaiser. And I have cousins in Savannah, Georgia that are Kaisers. So, you know, I, I, I called my aunt in, in Savannah, Georgia, and I was like really excited. I was like, how come you guys never said anything? They're like, yes, this is our history. So, you know, um, taking ownership, you know, that just really, really excited me. That was another component that really excited me. 
just to take ownership. It's okay if we don't know, we haven't been taught. And, um, and uh, I want to echo what uh, Nina said, like, you know, the visibility, you know, it, it's so important. You know, we're, we're not accepted in so many spaces. So to be amongst um, mm-hmm. my people mm-hmm. was so healing for me. And, and that was, that was, you know, the, I guess, uh, a way of, of addressing um, uh, social justice. Yeah, that, that, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. And I just want to double check because I know we got a little delayed. Are we, is it uh, seven o'clock that we, do we have a little extra time, Don? Yeah, you, you guys can go, you guys can go extra. We, okay, we, thank we you. We were late ourselves, so yeah. Okay, so I just wanted to, to you know, to re- reply to uh, what Pauletta was saying because I, I, what I hear what you're saying is the healing component of, of what writing has done and also how it has um, pretty much informed us and even connected us with land, as Lena was talking about, and also history um, and connected us to what's happening in this time in terms of, you know, what that need is. So I think that those are the powerful things that sometimes we um, don't necessarily put in writing, um, that we don't necessarily sit down and strategize about um, those feelings, those, those kind of transitions or transformations that happen to us when we actually are living that life. So um, thank you for that. And, um, and that, you know, this past uh, couple, a couple weeks ago, when you guys did the Green Book Ride for Juneteenth, I was able to also share kind of an open meditation prayer uh, where we met up at the Dunbar Hotel. And um, so that it's just moving to kind of make that time and that space for our ancestors and for what happened before us, because I think there is something about what happens in um, our human experience that moves us forward that that we can't see, you know, that we can't touch. So now we'll move into McKay uh, sharing her thoughts on the big question. Hey, there was just so much insight already shared from both Lena and Pauletta. So thank you for just being so authentic in your truth. I think for myself, I thought so much about recovery when this first started, you know, I was like thinking who's really going to be affected by this most adversely and then who's left, you know what I mean? Like, what does it look like when Mm -hmm. on the other side, right? Um, So that was been a question that I kind of was thinking through pretty early on, um, even probably as early as April. And I tend to work in, I don't consider myself an environmentalist, um, but I do work on a lot of environmental issues. I work a lot in the water space, um, in green spaces, green space and open space, like access to nature, um, and kind of at the intersection of what does transportation look like? What does housing look like, you know, in these spaces? And when I show up in these spaces, they're very white spaces. Like I am often the only black face there. um, And then also often the only black woman, if I'm not the only black face. And so, you know, what's been interesting is uh, there's this, uh, you know, when I think about transportation and to your point, Paulette, about what are essential, what is, what do we consider essential? And so there's been this concept that um, kind of came about 
well, I don't know when it came about, but there was this concept that I became aware of last year about the 10 minute city, right? And more recently I saw this article around the 15 minute city. So really thinking about what's in reach, you know, whether that be a 15 minute walk or a 15 minute bike ride, you know, like what does that look like um, if we, you know, kind of remove the main mode of transportation in most cities, which are cars, you know, and really allow spaces you know, for people to be able to walk and bike. And so it's been such an intriguing concept, you know, to really think. And I was thinking, um, you know, as I could see the streets emptying because safer at home orders were in place, you know, uh, just the idea of like people would feel more comfortable actually biking with their kids and with their family, you know, when there's not so many cars on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just having this different reality. And, and there's something, there's so many benefits, right? There's the mental health and kind of healing component of that. There's the physical health that is so vital to our communities just to be active and moving. You know, there's the environmental benefits of just not contributing, you know, more pollution to um, the world. And, you know, there's just something that just like we then now is the time to explore like what does it look like i mean i was already thinking you know maybe the four-day work week was definitely a way where maybe there's three days where there's just not so many cars on the street people don't need to feel like oh i'm gonna take my car and go this place no what if i was able to bike to the park bike to the grocery store bike to you know medical care um and all of the kind of vital places that we might want to go bike or walk to school you know so as you mentioned earlier me working at safe routes to school national partnership really was quite the awakening of thinking about, I, I never walked to school, but I um, really wanted my daughter who's 12 now to have the opportunity to just like, what if we had quality education that is actually in walking distance, you know, from where we live. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the reasons why people drive outside of their communities to, uh, you know, get quality education or whatever those is because it doesn't exist in their mm-hmm. own community. So I think there's such a moment of intersectionality that's very exciting, I think, to explore. Um, yeah, so I'm just like here for the ride, yeah. even though it's daunting yeah. <laughs> and exhausting as that work can be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean, I can definitely see like the three very powerful areas that each of you from land to belonging and riding on land to the organizing of space. and and the human infrastructure on how we reimagine that. And I mean, you said a lot of different um, perspectives that I, you know, um, I'm happy this is on video so I can go back and kind of bullet all these things that you guys have said. But I think one of the things that stands out to me in my life that you said, and I think it's really key, that how many people in black lives, um, I guess in the past and then now, black and brown lives, walk to school versus have to drive to another school because we need, we want as parents um, for our kids to have good education. And it's not fair to us that basically, even though we might want to have our community school where we can walk or bike, but the school is not up to par. You know, so um, I think those are things that we really do need to look at, because if we're going to reimagine, it's definitely at the intersection, we've got to reimagine the entire picture, the entire story, the entire narrative. 
And that's actually what I did with my, um, my, when my daughter actually, for the first time, attended a school in the neighborhood. It happened to be a charter school, the only middle charter school in our neighborhood, or only middle school, I should say, that was a charter school, New LA. Um, and it was about uh, several miles um, from us, so we were able to walk for the first time. But that's exactly what my daughter and I did because this was a community, West Adams, that I grew up in. So I actually, when we walked, we began the conversation of reimagining. So we, as we walked, we reimagined that this community can look, and it should look, just as good as another community that we lived in, and uh, which was View Park um, area near more so the Ladera. And it's like, why do we have to go to the marina or Westwood or what have you to see and experience and bike and walk in those type of neighborhoods? Our neighborhoods need to look like that. So that's when we walked down the Adams Corridor and we biked to school. We biked down the Adams Corridor and, um, and Hauser and Washington. That's how we were able to even more directly see where those points are that need to be improved upon. And you see it even more when you're walking and biking than driving. And that's actually when I reached, that was kind of the, the second tier of me reaching out to Michaela to say, hey, you know, as a grassroots advocate, a mom, can you please help me? Can you inform me? Because we are reimagining over here. So, you know, as grassroots people. And uh, so it was, it, it, one thing leads to another has led to all of us, you know, knowing each other um and and working with each other in some capacity so i uh, thank you guys so much for that and then just in wrapping um this up it seems like we probably do need an hour instead of 30 minutes but um i i would say that um what are your thoughts after this conversation in terms of kind of an action statement you know kind of a, a something that we ourselves can go to after this conversation next steps that you feel some one point that really stands out to you as we um, wrap up uh, We the People, Black Lives Rolling, but I know Don and Nick might want to continue this conversation. Um, and so you guys have the choice to stay on if you don't have any uh, other hangout activities um, during this COVID time. So well, let's start with uh, Lena again in terms of your action statement that both we um, and those that are viewing and that are going to watch this can maybe do start tomorrow in terms of, you know, reimagining and making those steps to make our community uh, black lives um, and pedestrian safety in this COVID time better. I think um, it's really around um, healing yourself. So like finding wherever your peace is, whatever brings you joy and whatever brings you you know, comfort, uh, find that, do that often. Uh, and then you're a, a better person. You're able to, you know, able to show up, you know, in all of these other capacities to help others, to help community, to help all of these other people in so many other wonderful ways because you are healed yourself and you're wonderful yourself. You know, so if you're taking care of yourself, you know, it's like on the airplane when they tell you to, you know, put your, your mask on first before you go to, you know, to help, you know, to put on someone else's mask. So find that joy for yourself. And then, you know, try to share that with someone else. I love it. I love it. I'm going to do that right now. So, Pauletta? Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, um, 
I love uh, organizing bike rides because it makes me feel better. And seeing other people enjoying it, it that's just a, an addition, you know. But, um, you know, um, how to reimagine uh, moving forward, you know, everything's subject to change. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, we're going to go, we're going to, I'm just going to go with the flow and um, uh, just keep trying things out, you know. Yeah. I, I, I think nothing is set in stone which is, can be a good thing, you know. In these uncertain times, it, the, the flip side of things not being certain can be a comfort because that means we, could, we, can, we can look at stuff, you know, um, like defunding the police and, and having some of the, the, that cat, that, those funding go to youth. We need a lot of prevention, um, 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 drug prevention for our youth. Uh, we need to break this pipeline from, from middle schoolers to prison. You know, that needs to be taken out. We need counselors. We need librarians. We need nurses. We don't need uh, a military police in the school system, you know. Um, we need activity for the kids. So that's something that, that um, I'm hoping that, you know, um, I'll see more of a push. Um, and then also, too, um, regarding what the two gentlemen were talking about earlier, um, as they were talking, I, I, what came to my mind was that the DME, uh, DMV handbook, driver's handbook, there's only, I believe, the last time I looked, there's only one page dedicated to, to bikers, you know? And so there's this, the, you know, so the impression to me is, um, you know, it's just overlooked, you know, and drivers don't really know that we have every right to be on the, uh, on the streets. We can take a lane if we want to, you know, uh, so maybe that's somewhere where we can start, you know, um, hitting up the DMV and, and, and pushing for more, more um, 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 guidelines and rules for these drivers. That's a good point, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's powerful right there. Yeah, too. Michaela? Um, so similar on the same vein, I would say, as Pauletta um, is to be fluid, right? I do think we are kind of on this journey, and we don't have to think about it as a linear, you know, um, journey that, you know, it will have its ups and its downs and just kind of like go with the flow. So that was really my action word. And, um, you know, a lot of what I've been thinking about is, you know, how do children go back to school? Like the irony is, um, my daughter is 12. You know, we met when your daughter was 12 and in middle school, we are now, we were walking to school prior to the pandemic. And there were so many co-benefits um, from that experience with a middle school girl, yeah. you know, so much chatter was happening that didn't happen when we were driving to school. Um, you know, anyways. And so I've been thinking a lot about outdoor classrooms, outdoor education. This is really a moment and how outdoor education has been seen very much as a an elitist type of thing, something that, you know, was available to white people and not available to our black and brown children. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is really a moment. So I'm really excited to be part of some national working groups to really provide resources on how we advocate and 
you know, get information out there um, around outdoor education. Like, yes, it is important for our children to go to school, you know, when it's safe. Um, and I think having, you know, access to outdoor education and the materials mm -hmm. and the curriculum, that type of support needs to be available, um, not just to people who can afford to pay for that, but for every, um, you know, child, especially, especially those of us, you know, that live in communities that are predominantly Black or predominantly African American and sending our children to school. So, um, that's something I want people to like black people like wait, you know like let's be aware of this let's you know figure out what the vocabulary is and utilize it so that we can advocate uh, you know for this type of change I think it's a, an exciting space and a moment and it's a space I've worked in for quite some time but I think it's an opportunity like we actually have a moment right now yeah yeah thank you and so true so true it definitely sounds like we have a lot of work to do um, I think what stands out to me is everything that you guys said and also the fact that it's not time to hold back. You know, it's time to actually just push forward because, I mean, that's what this is all about in terms of the um, reimagining. It's, it's not only reimagining how we move around and outside our doors, but how we move around inside our, our doors in terms of making those shifts so that um, we can be a part of this, this new world that we're all um, working um, to, to make better. Um, and I would say just one of my major concerns, um, while I myself have not uh, directly, my son, for instance, or my daughter, has not directly experienced um, police violence, um, a black life that has been um, brutalized, um, and harmed in any way and or killed. It, 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 it is unbearable for me to look at uh, videos of our young black lives, men, boys, and women now, and even older um, men and women um, being subject to uh, violence by not all police, but many police. So it, you know, while we're having this conversation about bike riding, and, and walking and outdoor activities in and also in the COVID pandemic, um, it is urgent and it's a call, it's a plea that I continue and I will continue um, to be that squeaky wheel just like I was at my daughter's middle school to get um, the uh, traffic lights um, and the entire infrastructure improved upon from being a squeaky wheel with no budget. Only the, the, and we have to recognize the power that exists within us because that is purpose. And so I believe that our purpose to play a role in um, saving black lives in this time, young black lives, uh, as we go through the protests that we're, we're talking about, as we possibly start back to directly going to a location to go to school, or even if we're trying to go to the, the grocery store or a park, that right now I fear, you know, and even when we're promoting biking on this radio show and all the work that we do across the country in terms of saying, let's get more people out on bikes. Um, we have to, we cannot just say, let's get more people or black lives on bikes if we too don't have it connected with the movement of defund the police, um, that we want care and not cops. You know, that we want funding to be taken from the um, exorbitant amount of money that some, for some reason, 
um, our, 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 our state and our city feels needs to go to our police department, that we're at the tables. We need, we all need to be at the tables um, to be able to maybe meet these people that are making these types of decisions. So I think um, as women, you know, we can definitely break it down from a standpoint of care. You know, we definitely can break it down from a standpoint of healing. Um, and also the fact that we are outdoor bicyclists, walkers, healers, uh, people of the land, that we can maybe, you know, be able to together um, make change in that way. So I think for me, the action word is let's move forward co-creating, you know, and co-creating we are able to bike, we are able to um, use our parks and create this new classroom, if you will. And so again, I just thank you all. I know uh, we've got some bonus time that we've used with Don. And Don and, and Nick, I don't know if you guys have anything that you would like to um, say uh, at this point of our show, but thank you, Don and Nick, so much for just providing us with the opportunity to have these conversations on We the People, Black Lives Rolling. Yeah, no problem. Thanks guys for coming on the show. And uh, I really was vibing with what I think it was Pauletta that was talking about the DMV um, as an avenue. I'm always thinking of like mm -hmm. strategies for getting into, you know, the government who sets the policy on the ground. And, and uh, I've often thought about that DMV issue. It's like, they barely talk about cyclists. They, they you know, I've, I've almost thought of like showing up at the DMV and and sort of stopping the 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 uh, the the drivers as they come out with the you know they do the test and be like, hey, you know, just so you know, um, why don't you guys do something about bikes too? You know, I'm on the road kind of thing. Like have some kind of action where we could talk directly to the uh, test, the uh, instructors and, and the drivers. I don't know. I'm going off the hooks here, but uh, thanks for coming on, you guys. And uh, you're all welcome to stay with us. We're going to bring on the uh, executive director of Cal Bike, who is, uh, that's a, a statewide organization that's working on some of our state issues here in California. So if anybody wants to continue to, to uh, join the conversation, you're all welcome to. Um, thanks again for... Uh, for uh, you know, having having that very important conversation that you guys have had so far. Okay, Thank and if you. I just say one last thing, um, in a couple weeks we'll have our next uh, show and series. Not sure who we're going to have on next, but it'll be twice a month, and that information yes. will be posted on um, Bike Talk and also Ride and Living Color. And if and basically, if anyone has any questions, you guys can reach out to me that way. All of our information is on our. Uh, on our event page and all of the bios for the ladies this evening are also on the event page. So thanks again and peace. And I'm going to hang out, Don. Okay, cool. Bye, guys. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Yolanda. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Um, let's see. Nick is having some technical difficulties. So we're hoping that uh dave snyder where is dave there he is hey dave hi i'm glad you're sticking you around you hey. nice to see you it's been a while 
Yolanda, your mic's on mute, just so you know. Hey, Dave. Good to see you, too. Yeah. How's it going? Surprise. Yeah. Definitely. I'm going to be around, hear what you guys got to talk about. Okay. Bye. So, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Bill, Bill AB 3153, known as the bike parking bill. Did I get that right, David? That's, that's perfect. Okay. So... So we Tell us about this. So in, in California, actually in a lot of st all states and even uh, other countries, um, as a matter of uh, planning policy or, or, you know, building code, you have to, if you're going to build a building, you have to include a certain amount of space to park cars. And this is not this is, this is a relatively new uh, law. This is like less than 100 years old in the development of cities. So um, if you look at old cities in Europe where there is very little space to park cars, it's a very walkable city that you're in. If you can walk to the market, you can you know, uh, ride bikes, and, and there is very little parking in European cities that were built you know, hundreds and thousands of years or, you know, a thousand years ago or whatever. Uh, but here in California and even in Los, like in Los Angeles, you do have some neighborhoods that were built before the car was invented. But most of what we have now is built after the car was invented. And they've made these laws that say we need to build space to park cars. And what you end up getting is a city that's, made for cars where you basically have to drive everywhere for everything. And uh, this bill appears to kind of reverse some of that. Am I correct? For future buildings. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, you, 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 we call it the, the bike parking uh, bill. If we're being thorough, we would call it the bike parking or car sharing in place of car parking in new housing bill. That's that's what it does. It, it it allows developers the opportunity to reduce the amount of car parking that they are required to build if they build a certain amount of bike parking spaces or car sharing spaces or both. So this is new because I thought I I thought I had read that that there was already some kind of way to trade off uh, bike parking for car parking but is that maybe like a city law and now some we're talking cities already have that some cities already have that um and it just wouldn't apply uh in those cities uh so and and which is a good thing because we don't want to usurp uh cities requirements which might be stronger if a okay. requirement is weaker this will usurp those requirements so so if a city insists that that you build uh very often it's it's one parking space per bedroom right so if you're building an apartment building with with 10 two-bedroom apartments that's 20 parking spaces that you have to build and and it's uh it, it you know it devastates the, the the urban environment and it's expensive and you end up with less housing uh, this would allow the developer to cut that back by a by up to 30 percent if they put in uh, bike parking. Okay, 30%. Okay. 
Is so there they could build just 14 spaces, for example, which would give them the enough room to put another, uh, you know, unit of housing in there. It would give them enough room to put some storefront retail to sort of activate the street. Um, if you have affordable housing requirements, it makes it easier for them to meet those affordable housing requirements. Now, a lot of people out there, a lot of the voters out there, they hear, you know, they hear um, something like this where, where we're reducing parking spaces and immediately a red flag goes up. Uh, you know, I don't think people make the connection that a walkable city has less parking and that's a good thing. Like, how do you sell this to the public? Is this, this, this is not going to be voted on, but this is going to be, you know, debated and, and I mean, it's going to be voted on by our senators, but not by right. the public. Right. Okay. Right. So this, this is going to be debated and you got guys like, uh, I think his name was uh, Scott Wiener who comes out, who, who's been trying to push forward, uh, uh, legislation that that sort of encourages density and so forth, and he's been pushed back on by uh, various groups. What's the opposition look like to this, and how do you sell it to them? Sure. Um, the The truth is that a lot of buildings are overparked. That city requirements uh, require more parking than is necessary. Uh, it ends up subsidizing car parking and developers uh, don't want to put in that much uh, parking and the bill is optional. It's not mandatory. So it only applies if the builder wants to take advantage of it. They won't want to take advantage of it if there's a huge demand for car parking. Right. Uh, right. Their, if their investors, you know, won't, won't uh, pay for the building because they insist that, that the, the builder includes a lot of parking spaces or else the, the investors think they won't be able to sell or rent the units, then, then uh, the, the builder will include all that car parking. But since the transportation patterns have changed so quickly, the, a lot of the investors and a lot of the rules, or I should say a lot of the rules haven't caught up with how quickly travel patterns have changed and how, how quickly people are needing places to park their cargo bikes so that they can take their kids to school and, and how uh, quickly people are realizing that they can get by without owning a car and using, using uh, transit and bikes and the occasional car share or, or Lyft or Uber uh, if they can afford it still cheaper than than owning and operating a car uh and so the the rules still assume that everyone's going to own their own car maybe two uh and and so this is a chance for uh builders to take advantage of the new new transportation patterns before the rules have caught up gotcha do you anticipate has there has there been any opposition so far not yet okay I'm, I'm I'm a little bit surprised just because I'm 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 surprised that there's um, not some conservative cities who are saying no 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 we have to force all builders to include lots and lots of parking. Maybe people are more uh, aware than I than I realized. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, this is removing restrictions, you know, from the government. You'd think that 
conservative and libertarian groups would be actually in favor of this since it takes away uh, government regulations in a way, right? Like, well, aren't, yeah, aren't there contradictions in, in politics all over the place? This is one, sure. of, this is one of those where, where uh, conservative politicians want government regulation if it, if it uh, supports automobility. Yeah, it's so weird how that works. So, okay, so what's the uh, the next yeah, step more, here? More government, except for police and military and and cars. Right, right. We want small government, except we want to pay trillions for military, police, and automotive infrastructure. Yes. So, um, uh, Yolanda, do you have any? Uh, I just want to make sure that Yolanda feels included on the conversation here. So. Um, yes. yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, of course, I had uh, some reimagining uh, questions on um, kind of how this would work in terms of, I know I just think of my community in particular where a lot of development is happening. And um, however, um, our community constituents as a whole um, are not aware of most of the development that's taking place here, kind of what type of business is it gonna be? Um, in some cases, we know there'll be hotels, um, we will have retail and what have you. So I, I reimagine in terms of how bike education can play a role. Um, and that because there's so much bike education that needs to take place um, in communities where biking on the level that we're trying to get it and walking and using green space still, you know, we're still doing a lot of work in that. And I really see this as a possibility to kind of incorporate that bike education and that maybe this would be something that is happens before, you know, we even get into the development of the project. And so by the time the development of a project comes in, we would be able to make that connection to these types of, of parking um, arrangements as well as um, for affordable housing that maybe that is a part of a program that could um, exist um, in offering more bike education to the, to the very tenants that we talk about affordable housing. Um, because in some cases, these tenants don't have bikes. Um, and in other cases, they haven't really thought about using bikes. So if they are of age, you know, not a senior that's not really able to ride, um, but that they could actually ride and start, and, and, incorporating biking as a part of their lifestyle. So mm -hmm. I just kind of also see this affordable housing, which housing is such an important issue. How can we make that connection and build that relationship with bicycling and the advantages of it, both in terms of our lives, as well as to the environment? So, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, something occurred to me um, in this conversation if you're negotiating with the developer about about a housing project and you want them to put in more affordable housing mm -hmm. and they do the math on it and they they say they they can't afford it uh they're just going to go forward with what they're doing without this extra unit or two of affordable housing mm -hmm. uh and one of the reasons why they can't afford it might be because they have to build uh, too much parking uh mm -hmm. and and in parking spaces are extremely expensive. They can be up to you know eighty thousand dollars a a space uh, to build in wow. some units. And and not to mention that a parking space which takes up a bedroom of space 
you're losing you're losing money on that space like you're not able to charge rent for this parking space that you would charge if it was a bedroom yeah and let me explain a scenario where uh, it could be extremely significant let's say that you would be required to put in 60 parking spaces normally but if you can get away with 50 parking spaces you don't have to dig a hole let's say that your your lot uh, can you can put 50 parking spaces kind of in the back on the first floor still still leaving room for you know nice pedestrian uh, frontage mm -hmm. uh, but if you have to build 60 you've got to dig a hole and then all of a sudden your costs go way up and there's no way you're going to agree to any affordable housing concessions in that case uh, if you can cut your parking requirement back so that you don't have to dig a hole you're going to save a lot of money and, and you, you got a win-win. You get more affordable housing, you get more market rate housing, uh, and you get more bike parking, mm -hmm. and you get the opportunity for families that want to live a more affordable life without having to own a car, have a place to park their bikes. Uh, if, bring it in the if, elevator, you know, carry it up the stairs, stuff like that. If AB3150 AB passes, would it be possible to build a building with no parking? It's always possible. This will not. Uh, this will not allow a a builder to do that if the city doesn't allow it. This will only allow okay. it to go back thirty percent at most. Okay. And that's and that thirty percent if it's close to a transit stop, fifteen percent otherwise. Oh really? Oh man. Okay. Okay. So it's pretty. It's a. It's fairly mild. It's not. It's not. Yeah, and, and and it only affects. Um, it only affects new buildings. And, and, and for the cities that have uh, requirements like this already, it's, it doesn't affect them. So it's for all those places in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. It's for all those places that are uh, um, where, the, where the rules haven't caught up to the reality of how people want to get around and the, and the desperate need for affordable housing. And it states a really important state principle that, uh, that sustainable transportation and affordable transportation is more important than car parking and we're willing to to uh, really insist on that at the state level and and you know in in, in 10 years uh, this bill will not be necessary because we'll, we'll have gotten rid of a lot of parking requirements uh, one can hope but but right now it's uh, a really important step in in allowing builders to to build the kind of housing that we want to see I'm, I'm optimistic. Right. Okay. It, it might be longer than that before this bill uh, is obsolete, but uh, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're changing fast. Okay. I think yeah, one I was, of the things, Don, I just want to say, I think one of the things that just stand out also to me is um, I'm always thinking about the, the human infrastructure and how we can make that connection, you know, of, of parking, built infrastructure with people. And so um, basically just so that we can build that relationship with that space. So like you were saying, I think it's um, very key, uh, Dave, in terms of, of being able to cut down the number of parking spaces so that they actually have the budget to actually create maybe a little bit more affordable um, housing units, but also to use that space both possibly for parking and or other um, biking education classes that might um, can take place. Right, you know? Yeah, so you can be creative possibly with that as well, with that space. Yeah, you know, in San Diego, the San Diego Bicycle Coalition got the ground floor of a new housing project for their offices and they do bike education in there. Mm -hmm. um, 
in downtown San Diego. That's that's an example of exactly what you're talking about, I think. Yeah, cool. Well, right on. So we're going to look for uh, the next steps with uh, 3153. What is that? It's uh, Yeah, um, it's... Uh, the next step is a, a, a hearing in the Senate uh, Governance and Finance Committee. That hearing could be as soon as August 1st. It could be later. They have not set it yet. There's a chance it won't even get to a hearing, actually. Uh, so it's really important that people contact their senators. We got 714 emails sent when I checked earlier. Uh, nice. uh, since then, that was, that was a couple hours ago. We have 738 right now. Um, I'm looking right now at the number. Uh, so, uh, we were trying to get a thousand and it's important to get those in the next several days so that, uh, the senators realize that there's something we really want to see on the agenda. Okay. Well, I'm on the page right now on calbike.org and I have found my... I found the form here, so is it? Is it? Is it? I hope it's obvious. You know what? I I, I clicked it from the link uh, in the email. So if you go, if you go, go to calbike.org and click on the take action button, uh, you'll find it. Okay, cool. I'm about to add my name to the list. So thank you. That's a that's a good one. So uh, thanks for coming on, Dave. We always yeah, love thank having you, on thank here. Thank you, Yolanda. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Great seeing you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. I wish I could come down and visit uh, one of these days. Yes, one way. I love Sacramento, too. Yeah. Cool. So maybe I'll come your way. Cool. Okay, yeah. Please, yeah. All right. Bye. All right, right on. Take care. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Nick. All right. That was uh, Dave Snyder, Executive Director of CalBike. We are looking for support for AB 3153. That is the call to action as we uh, wrap up this show. Bike Talk on KPFK live stream, now on Zoom. And now with Yolanda T. Davis Overstreet as our latest co-host. And she'll be coming back on, uh, I guess, every other week. Right, Yolanda? Uh, yeah, uh, that time yeah. goes so fast, that 30 minutes. Thank you for those extra, those yeah. extra <laughs> I know, that's the thing. We could go on for, we, could, we should have like a three-hour Bike Talk. Just okay really <laughs> for, i don't know uh i mean if we if we if we don't if all our listeners go away who cares we're still having a great exactly exactly that's true that's true <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i mean you know a lot was said and a, a lot was shared and this was a great show you guys had lined up today yeah um all right well okay we'll see you next time yes take care bye have a good weekend you too take care ride safe in the morning and greet the day pull out the bike and i'm on my way the transportation shows i care every turn of the pedal cleans the air green in the green i'm saving the planet just like my friends dale sean toby and janet no greenhouse gas a tiny carbon footprint up your ass i'm on a motherfucking bike Thanks for listening to this episode of Bike Talk. If you want to hear more, go to kpfk.org, navigate to programs, and choose Bike Talk. On the Bike Talk page, click on the archives link to play or download shows posted in the last four months. 
go to biketalk.com and copy or click on the RSS link to subscribe. Our Twitter handle is BikeTalkPFK. On Facebook, we are Bike Talk. You can become friends and join our group.